I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. I want to give a shout out to OKR's expert, Ben Lamort. One of our conversations on the show is the number one downloaded show of this podcast. And we have a second interview with him that's also in our top 10. And in one of those conversations, he mentioned a short book called Outcomes Over Output. And my first thought on the title alone, what's the big deal? What's the difference? And then I read it. And again, and another time, the book is short, it's simple, and profound. The author is Josh Seiden. He lives and breathes in the software world as a UI designer, and his perspective on outcome-based thinking is universal, regardless of industry and role in the business. Josh Seiden, the topic is outcomes over output, the topic of his book. That's coming up next here on CFO Bookshelf. I will not steal Josh's thunder on his definition of outcomes, but I wanted to hit this topic head on. Why is outcomes thinking so hard as opposed to outputs thinking? Well, you know, I I do a lot of my my work is I I do a lot of work as a, a coach and a consultant helping teams be more productive. And um, I particularly work in product development, software development, and technology. And and one of the cliches you hear in that world, uh, especially in the the so-called agile world, is you hear this cliche outcomes over output. And it's it you know it's a really it's a it's a great phrase. It's super catchy, um, but it, it it's it's hard to do. It's hard to be outcome focused. And one of the things that um, I sort of realized as I was working with teams is that people use the word outcome in a pretty loose way, right? We mean it, oh, an outcome is a result. It's a goal. It's a target or whatever, right? And what I realized that, you know, with my, with my work is that if I could help teams be really specific about outcomes, that would help us move forward. And so the the definition that I use in my work is that an outcome is a change in human behavior that drives business results. And we can talk about why that behavior is, is uh, why that definition is valuable. Um, but it, it, one of the things that's valuable about it is that it's very specific and very concrete. And I've discovered in, in, in you know, working with teams that that, that, that specificity and that definition really helps teams move forward. Your definition is simple and profound. I've tried to break your definition as I read it. I kept thinking, I'm going to break this. I'm going to break this. <laughs> Josh, I can't break it. I, I Again, it's so fundamental, but yet it's, this is absolute truth, my opinion. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think, we could debate other definitions of it and and i'm i'm open to other definitions but i think this one i like because it's very practical and grounded and so you know we i think we go to work every day and we have we have to get work done and so we need sort of simple practical tools that point us in the right direction and so like for me the the truth is the truth in this definition is is it useful 
And so what I think um, the, the use in this definition is we can talk all day about what are we going to do? What are we going to make? What are we going to build? Um, you know, did the report get written? Is the report delivered on time? Whatever. But at the end of the day, the question is, did it change someone's behavior? Did it change someone's behavior and create value for the person, uh, for the organization, uh, for all of the parties involved? And and it's just a really it, it's just a really practical yardstick um, that applies in a lot of different situations. Josh, because you do a lot of coaching, you get to see a lot of different experiences in varying industries. Why is it that we tilt more towards output instead of outcomes? It almost seems like it's muscle memory. It's 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 almost too natural. Yeah. To tilt toward it. Why, why, in your opinion, is, is that? Well, I, I think there are, there, are, there are at least a couple of reasons. You know, one is, as you say, it's muscle memory. You know, we, we've built all of these systems of management in the last hundred years um, about that the, the kind of come from industrial management, the, the, the problem of making stuff. Um, and making stuff is hard. You know, like I, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not claiming it's not important. Making stuff is hard. Doing it well is hard. Building cars is really hard. What, you know, and so we've built all of these kind of management tools around getting stuff built. Thinking about results and how people use our products is much more abstract. It's a harder way to think. And so first we have all these systems for thinking in terms of what we're going to make. And second, the alternatives are kind of, fuzzy. They're hard to conceptualize, you know? And, and then, and then I think the other thing is, um, well, no, I, let's just stay with those two for now. Like I, I think everything else, uh, I mean, we talk about that, but, but I think those are the two big reasons, right? In the book, you talk about working on wall street and there was a software project that was being worked on. Is that kind of the starting point of when you started having this thinking process about outcomes over output. Is this basically when you had this epiphany? Actually, uh, Mark, it, it, it really started earlier. One of the, um, one of the, one of my first jobs, my first job, I, I worked for a long time as a, a designer, uh, designing software systems. And I worked for a, a terrific uh, designer, really one of the foundational guys in the field, a guy named Alan Cooper. And, Alan used to talk about um, uh, thinking about design from what, as what he called goal-directed thinking, goal-directed design. It's not about building stuff. It's not about making software. It's about understanding what the user and the customer is trying to do with it and help them reach their goals. He used to say, he used to say the, mo the reason that most meeting planning software, you know, like calendar software, he would say, uh, he wrote an article one of the first articles I read by him he read this article about why calendar software is so terrible. And he said, look, it makes it really easy to schedule a meeting. Nobody wants to go to a meeting. What we want is software that makes it easy to avoid meetings. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so he had this kind of, he had this way of talking about software as goal directed, you know, helping to understand people's goals, which is good, but for me, not as precise as what are the things people are trying to do and how do we help them do that more effectively? 
right? And so th- this is sort of an evolution of that idea, a, a way to sort of be honestly a little bit reductive, but also a little bit more specific about, you know, goals and um, uh, the results we're trying to achieve. I had never heard of the logic model. And I don't know if the you, you have a link to the Kellogg Foundation. Uh, they have a explanation of, of how it works. But could you briefly explain it? And again, I, I can't thank you enough for including that in the opening part of the book. It is outstanding and it's a good fit with outcome-based thinking. Sure. So, you know, I started to hear about this kind of the I started to hear the word outcomes being used um, somewhere around 2010, 2011. I started spending time in the uh, Lean Startup community. Um, Lean Startup is, of course, a, a book by Eric Reese, really, really terrific book. Um, and a lot of people in the Lean Startup community were sort of questioning the whole orthodoxy of should we build this thing, right? There's a lot of waste in software. We build a lot of software that's really terrible. And so people who've spent their lives working in software started to really question that. Um, and they started, I started to hear the word outcome being used, but in a pretty loose, vague way. And as I started to kind of look into this, um, at sort of around the same time, I started to meet people who were working in the nonprofit world and the program logic model, which is, is the, this model that I've kind of, um, adapted a little bit. The program logic model uh, by the Kellogg Foundation is is something that has you know it's it's pretty well known in the in the nonprofit kind of social good world, um, and it's a way that um, it's a way of evaluating whether essentially grant money is being spent well, um, and um, they use this kind of framework of output outcome impact. They have a slightly in, in that model, they have a kind of a broader definition of outcome th- than I use, but um I use kind of a subset of that definition. That's um but but that was the first time I heard it was was coming out of the nonprofit world. And I was really surprised actually because um as I started to talk to people who worked in that world, what I realized was there's really like very little crossover between uh, the sort of folks working in for-profit and folks working in not-for-profit. And it's almost two different, really, uh, bodies of knowledge that that there's very little crossover. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Do you still get kind of that deer in the headlights syndrome when they hear the words outputs, outcomes, impact? And, and Josh, I bet you've heard this a lot. No, 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 no Jill, that, that, that's an impact. No, Tom, that's, a, that's an output. Just can you pick a couple of simple 
I mean, really simple examples that delineates between outputs, outcomes, and impact. Sure. So uh, it's the it, it's relatively straightforward, but but it's also slippery. So um, here's here's the here's the simple example that I always use. If um, if you're running, let's say, a national chain of mattress stores, right? You are responsible to shareholders for a number of high level health metrics in your business, revenue, profit, market share, growth, customer satisfaction. We know these things, right? They're the sort of the the dashboard level thinking, right? They're really important to measure the health of the business. They're, we're, we're held responsible for them. Um, but they're also big, complex uh, roll-ups of lots of different factors, so I couldn't turn to, let's say I've got, you know, stores in all the major cities in the U.S. I couldn't go to the team in New York City where I live and say, okay, you folks here at mattress store number 16, you're responsible for making our national chain uh, profitable, right? It's absurd, right? There's too many other stores. There's too many other factors. They can't do it. So you need you need to break this down. I mean, you could ask the store to be profitable by itself. But even so, you need to start to break this down to individual uh, kind of uh, things that things that small groups of people or individuals can be responsible for. So those high level metrics are what we'll call impacts. They're long term. They're uh, important. They're complex. Okay. The next level down are outcomes, right? And so those are. Uh, the definition of, uh, that we started with, right? An outcome is a change in human behavior that drives business results. So what would be kind of our primary example here? It would be sales. Customer buys a mattress, okay? And so we could say to the store, you are responsible for mattress sales, right? So you are, we're going to incentivize you based on the unit sales. Every time a customer buys a mattress, you know, uh, you get a check mark or whatever that bonus is, right? The customer buys a mattress. That's the um, that's the outcome. Now, everything that I do in my store to drive that outcome, um, the way I merchandise in the store, the way I lay out the store, the way I put signage in the newspaper uh, on the sidewalk to encourage foot traffic, the advertisements that I place in the newspaper, that's all output. That's all stuff that I make, right? And, um, and so those are kind of the three levels. Now, this stuff is, 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 we can break it down further, but let's just stop there for a second. The stuff I make, the ads are the output. The valuable customer behavior is they buy a mattress. And, um, and the impact is, you know, revenue and profit. And so if the ads aren't getting people to buy more mattress, mattresses, or if the ads aren't driving foot traffic, right, that would be another valuable outcome, then the ads aren't working, right? And so um, that's kind of, that's sort of how we start to use those pieces. What is, and again, it's in the book, but what is the starting point for figuring out the right outcomes. I mean, you can even go back to your mattress store example. What the heck should be my right outcomes? And this is almost gets into what should my goals be for the year? What should, but I almost think thinking about outcomes 
it's not an easy exercise, but there's a however. You've got some brilliant questions that I have plagiarized for myself. <laughs> well, it's because I give them the book. It's like, we're going we're gonna to answer these questions. But what, what is your starting point for yeah. trying to determine the right outcomes? So the, the, the starting point, and, and it's a deceptively simple question, um, is, is, what I, is the, what I call the first magic question, is what are the things people do that create value, right? What are the things our users do, our customers do, our employees do, we do? What are the things that we do that create value? And when you really dig into that question, and, and now you're going you're gonna to hear my, my, my roots are going to show because my background is in user-centered design. And so the way I understand uh, all of this stuff is by trying to understand what people are doing as they use our products and services and what they're trying to do. And so when I work with my clients, the first thing I do in this mattress store example, for example, we would say, well, let's tell the story. Let's tell the story of the mattress shopper. What does the mattress shopper do first? Right. Well, probably the first things that the mattress shopper does are things that we can't see. Okay. They probably wake up with a stiff neck or something and they're like, okay, it's time to buy a new mattress. But there are moments in the story that we can see. The first moment is probably when they walk into the store, right? And then the next moment is, what did they do next? Well, they walk around and maybe they, they press on the mattress kind of timidly. Maybe they ask the salesperson a question. Then there's this moment probably when they, they lie down on a mattress. Okay, now we know they're interested. That's a really interesting part of the story. Then what do they do? Okay, maybe they lie down on another mattress. Maybe they go ask the salesperson another question. Maybe the question they ask is, hey, will you take away my ne- my old mattress? Oh, maybe that's an interesting behavior. Right? And then they buy the mattress. Okay. So the story is probably a little more complicated than that, but that's a story now that we've just told about people. And that story is all behavior. What do they do? First, they walk in the store and then they do this and then they do this and then they do this. Our job um, in running any kind of business is to know that story better than anyone else. And to understand what are the valuable moments in that story and how then we get to the second magic question, question, which is how do we get people to do more of those things? Right. And so it all starts by uh, paying attention to what you'll hear designers talk about. Um, designers talk about the user journey or the customer journey. And so it's, it's all about paying attention to what people are doing. And then using all of the resources we have in our uh, in our toolkit to understand which one of those behaviors are really valuable. There's a term you bring up frequently, especially in the middle part of the book. It reminds me of some of the thinking of Eric Reese. And by the way, every time I hear the name Eric Reese, I can't help of thinking of Steve Blank, uh, who who is mm-hmm. probably the teacher uh, of, of Eric. And I love his writing as well. But hypotheses. You bring up hypotheses several times in the book. And as you're talking about that customer journey, it starts with some assumptions or presuppositions or preconceived ideas that have to be tested. One of the things that's, you know, I I talked in the beginning about, we were talking about muscle memory and all of the management tools that we have 
for, you know, producing cars, for example. Well, you know, one of the key disciplines when we're building cars is engineering, right? We, we can figure out how to make a more efficient engine and how to put all the parts together. And we use engineering skills for that. Selling more mattresses is not an engineering problem. It's a problem of, you know, getting humans to do things. Now, people want to buy mattresses. We want to sell the mattresses. But how do we make that interaction as successful as possible? Again, it's not an engineering problem. And so you heard me tell this story. But I bet if I asked you to tell the story of how a customer bought a mattress, you'd tell a slightly different story. And I bet for all the listeners, they probably have slightly different stories in their heads, too, about how people buy mattresses. Who's right? I don't know. (laughs) Right? And so these stories are probably all credible. But now we have to go see which which version of the story is is the one that uh, holds the most water which versions of the story we need to pay attention to. And so all of these stories, as we're first telling them, are based on our assumptions about how things work. If if you and I actually worked in retail mattress sales, we would know a lot more about it. But even so, I bet there's some assumptions in there that are worth testing. And so, you know, I think uh, the, the lean startup movement taught us to use the word hypotheses, right? Uh to, to deal with these situations where we, we have a pretty, we've made a pretty good guess, but now we need to go find out as quickly as possible if we're right or wrong. If this is, and Josh, this is not a nitpick. So I work with a lot of CEOs who are in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to move fast. Mm-hmm. Um, all their great ideas are supposed to have been executed two or three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. What I would have added in the section about, these hypotheses is don't succumb to being impatient. Don't be impatient. Take your time unless you're on the Poseidon. (laughs) Well, you know, I I mean, one of the, one of the challenges I think in working this way is that, you know, this situation, even this like simple mattress store example um, is filled with uncertainty and we hate uncertainty. We hate it. We hate it in every, Every situation, and we really hate it when we're the leaders who are supposed to have the answers, right? Don't bother me with those questions. Just go do it. Do what I say, right? And so, being able that kind of response of like, let's move fast, kind of, I, I think it's because we don't like the uncertainty and we just want to get to the answer. And but sometimes that doesn't make the uncertainty go away. I mean, it, it never makes the uncertainty go away. So sometimes we have to kind of deal with that uncertainty, recognize it and say, look, we're going to, we, we can find this out quickly, but we actually do have to find it out. I want to go back to your definition one more time. Outcome-based thinking, it's a change in human behavior that drives business results. And, and that's both for the customer and the business. There have to be positive customer results and business results. It has to be both. And the reason I want to bring that up is because if it's just focused on the customer results and not business results, I call that a not-for-profit. Or if you're just focused yeah. on business results and not the customer, you're probably going to run out of customers at some point in time. So before we get an HBAR, I just wanted to accentuate it's both, not one more than it's, it's, it's 
both. Am, am I spot on? Yeah. I think you're right. And I think, in fact, there's, there's, there's four levels that I talk about with my clients, right? There's, you know, I, I do a lot of uh, work with uh, sort of um, uh, uh, larger businesses that have uh, both users and uh, users who are different than customers, right? So they'll, they'll sell to uh, an organizational buyer, but they're customers, right? And so you've got user outcomes. What is the user trying to do? And if, if you don't satisfy the user, then you don't get adoption. And then you've got customer uh, outcomes. If you don't satisfy the customer, you don't get sales, right? You've got your business outcomes. And if you don't satisfy those outcomes, you don't make money, you don't stay in business. And then above all of that, you've got uh, social outcomes. Are you acting responsibly in society? And if if you don't pay attention to those, you've got, you know, legal and moral and ethical problems, right? So you really have to kind of think about the alignment at, at, at all four of those levels, right? From the user to the customer to the business to the society. HBR, great story. I'm okay. going to have you set it up for us. And by the way, as I got finished reading it, I'm thinking, I wonder if Josh is getting royalties as a result Uh because I, I, I help me to remember, were you involved in this, or is this a story you heard about? It, it, explain the HBR story that's in the book. Yeah, so so the book that the book that we're talking about outcomes is my third book. Um, my second book with my co-author uh, Jeff Gottelf uh, is a book called Sense and Respond, and um, that was published on uh, HBR Press. And so the folk the folks at HBR. Um, had some, um, they had some exposure. I, I, we, Jeff and I wrote about, uh, outcomes, um, in, in both of our previous books and they got very interested in those ideas. The, the folks at, um, hbr.org, which is the team that runs the website there. Um, and so they, they'd read sense and respond and then they, uh, they uh, went through the process of trying to make their small team into uh, uh, organizing that team's work around um, uh, going from kind of feature-based organization to outcome-based organization. And uh, and then after they did it, they were very excited. And they called me up and they said, hey, Josh, we have this story that we want to tell you. <laughs> so, they, so I wasn't involved in it at all. I wasn't involved in well, it at all. It, it's a great story. What, at what point, of course, again, you're going to be assuming, and I don't know how much of the story that you know, but did, did they did they go through some roadblocks? Did they hit some obstacles? Did they hit some potholes? Uh, were there some landmines that they had to, to circumvent? Uh, I don't know if it was easy sailing from the get-go. Do, do you know much about getting from point A to, to point B? Yeah, I know a little bit about it. Um you know, the um, I mean, I'll set this up for, for listeners. So they were like a lot of small technology teams in that they were organized around the different um, part of the website. So you can imagine that, you know, one team owned a certain page, another team owned a different page, and one team might own a certain kind of uh, chunk of functionality that shows up when you check out and buy things, you know. And so that's that's really typical uh, of of how technology teams are organized. They're organized around kind of functional units, right? Um, but 
it's it's kind of a problem because it's not how users of a website experience the website, right? We don't feel like we're going from team to team to team. We're just clicking on buttons and going through the the website. And so, um, so first of all, so they were organized this way, and so they weren't working kind of holistically. And then the second thing was they just had uh, all of these in the in the business. They had all of these owners of all these different pieces of the business coming to them in this very disconnected way, saying, "Can you make this little upgrade? Can you fix this thing? Can you add this feature? Can you do this?" And so they had they had this ridiculously long backlog uh, of stuff that they had to do a, a to do list. That when they looked at it, they 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 said, "Look, this this to do list is is multiple years long. We're never going to get to this stuff. And if we do get to it, by the time we get to it, it's not going to be relevant. We have to. We need a better way." And so what they did was they stepped back and they said, "Okay, what are the things that? What are the really big important outcomes?" Um, and, uh, so they, they said, look, we've got two on our site. We want people to read things. We want people to consume our content and they offer audio and video too. So they had, a, they, they put together a consume team and they've got a buy team, right? Because they want people to purchase things, subscriptions and training products and books and reprints and things like that. And those two have a very kind of um, self-reinforcing relationship. The the better it is to consume, the easier it is to consume, the more valuable things are to consume, the more you purchase, the more you purchase, the more you consume, et cetera. So they were self-reinforcing. And so they reorganized around that. And they said, look, if we we know that instead of looking at this kind of list of three years long of stuff to do, that we don't know if any of that stuff is valuable. We do know that these things are valuable to the business. And so we need to focus on getting people to consume and getting people to purchase. Um, so that was the first thing and it really helped them orient towards value. But then the next thing was, those are really high level goals. Really. Those are what we just talked about as impacts. Right. And so how do we start to break that down further? And when they started to talk to the managers in the business, they discovered something really interesting. And, and this happens in almost every business that I've, I've worked with, which is that, the specific outcomes, what people are trying to do, what they want to do, most people can't see that. Most people don't in the business don't actually know what that is. And it, it takes a lot of work and a lot of conversation to get at that stuff. And so the team really had to kind of, the, the team couldn't go to the business and say, what outcomes do you want to drive? The team had to work with the business to help to help everybody discover what the outcomes needed to be right and that was i think that they went through you know i told that story pretty quickly but uh, it 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 took them months and months of work to kind of get through that major obstacle of learning both sides having to learn how to speak to each other to discover the outcomes and then discover then the work that they would do to support those outcomes. It's a great story. And here they are the home of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of management tools and techniques and frameworks, yet they settle on this one. And there is a positive, no pun intended, a positive outcome. Uh, there's a term that's brought up. I don't think it's subtle, but the term retrospective is brought up in that case study. 
And as I read mm-hmm. it, it made me wonder, I wonder if they're doing any type of a weekly pre-mortem or post-mortem, again, weekly. And I have a feeling when you work on these projects, do you encourage these teams to be doing you know, weekly huddles, weekly check-ins? Yeah. Now, I, I don't remember the specific rhythm that that, that team was using, but um, in the sort of agile software development work, that I that I come out of that uh, that regular practice of retrospective that kind of postmortem um, is a, a really key part of uh, of of the work right and so every you know every period of work and it's usually one week two week or three week uh, you know teams are encouraged to to hold retrospectives where they look back and they examine the work they did over the last you know, let's say two weeks and say, what went well, right? And there's different ways to do this, but generally speaking, you're looking at what went well, what didn't go so well, and what change do we commit to going forward, right? Uh, All in the service of kind of continuous improvement. right? And, uh, And so this is both continuous improvement, both for the product, but also for our working process together as a team. Yeah. The part in the end of the book, I'm one of those crazy people who reads the back matter of a book. I read the, <laughs> I read the resources. Uh, again, I want to give you kudos again in the resources. You've got links to outcomes mapping, impact map mapping. Again, the Kellogg Foundation logic model, North Star metric. You mentioned a couple other books. Again, I just want to, again, I want to give you a high five. Those resources are outstanding. I've read every single one of them. And some of these are short posts, but again, outstanding, remarkable. Just a quick question. This book came out, I believe in uh, 2019. Are there any other resources off the top of your head that you think, hey, if I were to update this book, I'd include this resource as well? Any, I'm sorry to put you on the spot, Josh. Yeah, no, no, no. I, you know, I, I am thinking about uh, a um, a second edition of the book uh, for the coming year. Um, you know, one of my goals for the book, one of the things we didn't talk about is that the book is is part of a series of very short books. And so the idea was that um, the, the book is a, sort of a chapter and a half of a typical business book. It's a book designed to be read. Uh, you know, you should be able to read it on a flight from New York to Boston or from, you know, LA to Seattle, uh, LA to San Francisco. Um, and so I worked pretty hard to keep the book lean. <laughs> uh, I do think that some of the stuff that we talked about earlier um, about understanding the customer and journey, uh, I think if in the second edition, that will probably be expanded and there'll be some resources in there about that. You know, I can plug, plug my, uh, my colleague, uh, Jeff Patton has some wonderful book uh, called user story mapping. Um, and so, uh, I, I probably include that as a, as a resource. Even though this book is short, if we were to take a survey of all of your readers, I would love to know, Josh, how many people have read it more than once. I've read this book more than once. And I know as an author that makes, I, I know some authors are very humble and it's like, they don't want to hear, but yeah, I've read it more than once. And I'd be curious. I, I bet more than half your readers have read this more than once. Or they've gone and it's so even though it's short and lean, it is again, no pun intended, it's impactful. 
Well, I'll tell you the, the one of the one of the outcomes for me that that tells me that this book has been has really hit its mark is that I hear from readers all the time that they they purchased the book for someone else. And and so that's for for me there are a handful of uh outcomes that you're you uh you like to hear as an author. Um and so yeah, I've read it I read it a couple times, I reread it, but also I bought it for my whole leadership team. There, there's one. <laughs> Outstanding. Hey, you yeah. mentioned this briefly, but plug the heck or explain just the synopsis of the book Sense and Respond. Yeah. So um so as I said, Outcomes is, is my third book. I, I, I come from the world of, of software and uh, technology product development. And so my first book was called Lean UX. I wrote with my co-author, Jeff Goddelf. It's a pretty technical book for if you're a designer or a product person, it won't seem technical, but it's not for the general business reader. Um, and it's about how to do a lot of this work, right? Um, from a sort of boots on the ground point of view. Um one of the strong pieces of reader feedback that we got was, would you please write a book for my boss, right? That explains this stuff because organizational transformation, it happens at every level. It needs to happen at the individual contributor level. It needs to happen in the ranks of leadership. And so Sense and Respond is a, a, a book for leaders um, that uh, talks about sort of moving from industrial era management to technology era management and some of the big and important changes that we need to embrace um, uh, as leaders as we move from building stuff and engineering to navigating the uncertainty uh, and navigating it uh, in a technology-mediated world. So Sense and Respond on HBR Press is, is a, a book for the general reader um, about how to deal with uncertainty in large organizations. We ask every guest this question, and I'm assuming you're a reader. And if you're not, that's okay. Maybe you're a podcast person or something else. But uh, if you're a reader, what are some of your favorite books, Josh? Um, well... Um, in the, in the world of, of product development, um, I guess where I spend a lot of time, uh, I've been really enjoying, uh, my colleague Teresa Torres's book, um, uh, uh, about product discovery. Um, and her, her book is a, a really great deep dive into, uh, into understanding who your customers are and what they're trying to do. And so I think it's a really great uh, kind of companion. I, I shouldn't say it's a companion to my book, but Continuous Discovery Habits, it's a great compliment. Again, Josh, this has been an honor. I, again, I, I love the book. We've had Ben Lamort on our show. Our number one downloaded show is about OKRs. He's been on three times, I believe, and even this, one of the second, either a second or third interviews in our top 10 and during the conversation, he mentioned this book. And so it's like, oh, let me look it up. Uh, I'm in a private community of his, and it's a book that gets mentioned a lot. So when I read it, I thought, no wonder people love this book. Again, this is it, this is a dynamite goldmine book. The thinking may seem fundamental, but no, like you said, it's hard. Uh, but I think once you start thinking this way, it doesn't leave you. 
And it is truly going to lead to transformation in the organization, whether it's for-profit or not-for-profit, software or non-software. So again, I just, I cannot thank you enough uh, for this book. Uh, Mark, I'm, I'm so delighted by your enthusiasm. So thank you so much. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Once again, that definition for an outcome, it's a change in human behavior that drives business results. Do you agree with that definition? Is it complete? Is it accurate? I believe it is. Near the end of the conversation, I mentioned OKRs, and Josh mentions objectives and key results in the book, uh, the fifth and final chapter. If you are an OKRs practitioner, he says OKRs can be improved if you think of the key result as an outcome. Once again, I want to thank Josh Seiden. The book is Outcomes Over Output, easily five stars. Guys, keep learning, keep making a difference. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.